Easter Sunday was last week, but that doesn't mean Easter is over. What's the difference between confirmation and baptism? Does the church have insurance to cover a cathedral burning down? And springtime means new beginnings. That means it'll be a new start for some of our clergy as reassignments are coming. All this and more coming up next. Welcome to A View from the Top with Bishop Gregory Parks, Bishop of the Diocese of St. Petersburg. A View from the Top is a candid and hopeful conversation on current events that affect our church, our community, and our country. Now, here's Bishop Parks and the General Manager of Spirit FM, John Morris. Happy Easter, Bishop Parks. Well, thank you, John, and happy Easter to you and, and to our listeners. It was a, a beautiful triduum. I was able to witness all of it. What a great time to see, especially that Easter vigil, the 10 people that you baptized come into the church. Well, that was very special for me as uh, as the celebrant of that Mass because I was I had a front row seat. Absolutely. So I was right there at the font and could see the expressions on their faces. One particular image that sticks with me is we had a um, an adult who was baptized, uh, a young woman, and she had a baby yes. uh, and asked if her baby could be baptized as well. So the young woman got into the font and I baptized her. And then we handed her her baby, and she held the baby while she was still in the font. Right. And I baptized her baby. What a, what a special it, moment. I mean, the look on her face was just of, of joy. I can tell you I still have chills from that image of where we were. And what a great image of really what it is about to become a, a Christian during that celebration. And even it was people of all ages. There were little five, six-year-olds who were testing the temperature of the water. <laughs> <laughs> I did I did have some fun with the uh, the kids that were baptized of age. When they got into the water, I said, so how does the water feel? <laughs> one said it was cold, the other one, one said it was hot. hot. <laughs> <laughs> but as you said, it's really the significance when you think about it. You know, when you're baptized as an adult, your sins are forgiven. Not Not just original sin, which baptism forgives, but every sin that those individuals had committed in their life up to that moment was washed away in that font. And it was made possible, of course, by what Jesus Christ accomplished in his life, his ministry, and most especially in his resurrection. You know, Easter, a lot of people say it's Easter Sunday, happy Easter, and then Monday it falls off. But Easter is a 50-day celebration. It sure is. In fact, we're currently, uh, as we're recording this, in the octave of Easter. And what an octave is, it's an eight-day celebration. And each day, we celebrate that day as if it's the feast. So like even today, we're still celebrating as if it's Easter Sunday, uh, even though we're several days removed from it. I'm still eating Easter ham. <laughs> and maybe some uh, jelly beans, John? <laughs> right. No, you know what? I, we, at our house, we stayed away from the jelly beans, the wax stuff, but okay. uh, there, there was some chocolate. In okay. <laughs> I'll say that. But, you know, it's interesting how our society tries to manipulate these religious holidays because it is a season that we celebrate. People uh, starting pre-Thanksgiving, we already start seeing the Christmas items come out, but December 26th, it all goes away, and yet the Christmas season should continue, and as a, as a Christian society, for the most part, we should be really embracing those seasons throughout versus just making them a one-day, one-and-done thing. 
Yeah, I mean, Christmas, I think, um, in some respects, has a little bit longer shelf life. You know, some people take their tree down the day after Christmas and it's over. But others do continue to celebrate Christmas through New Year's and, and hopefully into to January. But Easter, you're, you're right, it seems like Easter Sunday and then Monday, everything goes back to normal as if it never happened. Speaking of our newly baptized, they enter into a period called mystagogia, kind of a long word. Mm-hmm. But what that means is it's a it's a period for them to unpack the mysteries which they celebrated at the Easter Vigil. So it was a lot for them to take in the Easter Vigil. So the weeks after Easter is an opportunity for them to reflect upon what was done, uh, what they experienced, and of course the graces that they, they received in the sacraments. There's also a, a technical word and I don't know that I'm even using it right, so I'm going to throw it out there, neophytes. Yeah, so a, a neophyte is somebody who is newly baptized. And I think the word translates, neophyte would be like new sprout. So almost like a, a, new, um, a new plant just coming out of the ground, new life, right? And that's what, what a neophyte is. Let me go back to the, the baptism, because this question kind of came up. At the Easter Vigil, they're baptized and they're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Is that part of the confirmation as well? And how does confirmation differ from baptism? Sure. So at the Easter Vigil, the first sacrament that we celebrate is baptism. And when they come out of the font, those waters of rebirth, they put on the baptismal garment and receive the baptismal candle, which is the light of Christ. Immediately then after that, they are confirmed. So we do celebrate the sacrament of confirmation in which myself as the bishop or their pastor or priest in another parish would seal them on the forehead with the sacred chrism, which was just consecrated uh, at the uh, chrism mass before Easter and says, you know, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit and then peace be with you. And that completes the sacrament of confirmation. Of course, in a more traditional way, you'd be baptized when you were a small child, an infant, a baby, and then receive confirmation when you were in high school or a teenager. So there's that period in between. But confirmation confirms or strengthens the spirit, which is given to us in the sacrament of baptism. It's a further deepening of that sacrament, but also gives us additional grace to live this faith, which we profess. Right. One of the differences that I noticed this year, and you and I talked about it, I think it was off the air maybe, was the group that goes through RCIA, and that in years past in this diocese, they have also, that's also been part of the Easter Vigil, but now we're doing separate ceremonies for that group that could be done anytime. Is that correct? Yeah, so you have two different groups of individuals typically that receive sacraments. At Easter, you'd have the the catechumens who then become the elect, and then at the Easter vigil are the baptized or the neophytes. Uh, Those are individuals that were never baptized in their life. Then we have what we call candidates for full communion. Candidates are individuals that were baptized in another Christian denomination, other than Catholic, and have discerned and desire to become Catholic. So baptism is a sacrament we don't repeat. It's it's, It's uh, once and (laughs) one time. So they don't have to be re-baptized, but we do confirm them, and they receive the Eucharist for the first time. And I asked uh, when I arrived in the diocese if we could restore the Easter Vigil really to what it was in the first centuries which primarily focused on the unbaptized. 
sometimes at the Easter Vigil, you can have so many different individuals there, people that need to receive various sacraments, and it's hard to determine what the differences are, just as you're asking. So by really just focusing on the the, the, those that need baptism, kind of really highlights the importance of that sacrament. So when I look at your calendar and see that you're doing confirmations, will the people that are going through the RCIA process— also be at the same confirmation ceremony, or would that be a totally separate event? Yeah, those that are coming into full communion in the church, um, the church allows for that to happen on any Sunday. It doesn't have to be when the bishop comes for confirmation. So it doesn't have to be the bishop? No, no. In fact, priests, uh, pastors and priests uh, under canon law already have that faculty. They They can bring somebody into the church into full communion on any particular weekend, and I encourage them to do so because by doing that within the context of a Sunday Mass in the parish, what a great witness to the parish that conversion is taking place, that people are becoming Catholic. It's an opportunity to teach them about the sacraments a little bit. It doesn't have to all happen at the Easter vigil. Or in a separate ceremony. I mean, yeah. I think it's really cool that, that I've seen it where infants are baptized on a, on a normal Sunday with the full congregation already there to, to bring them into the family of the faith in the church. Yeah, and the other thing to remember, of course, is that God calls us to feast on his grace, not to fast on it. And if somebody is ready to come into the Catholic Church to be confirmed and receive the Eucharist, there's no reason to make them wait a period of time before we do that. Uh, they can be received into the church as soon as possible and receive that grace that God wants to give them. We have many listeners that uh, listen to Spirit FM that aren't Catholic. Many don't belong to a church, but they listen to our programming and they like what they hear. If they're interested in finding out more about the faith, you know, sometimes it's a little intimidating to go to a parish office and say, "Eh, you know, I'm thinking about this. Uh, What can you tell them to, to spur them on, I'll say? We certainly welcome those individuals to learn more about our faith. And typically when somebody thinks they might want to become Catholic, we do ask them to to visit with a priest or with another member of the staff just to talk about it, to explain to them how that would happen. Now, today, of course, you can go online and find out just about anything, and so you can find out the process to, to become Catholic or to learn more about the Catholic faith. But ultimately, you will need to make contact with a local parish to let them know that you're interested in learning more about the Catholic faith or, in fact, becoming Catholic. I saw a recent survey, I think it was on the news or something, where less Americans almost at all time are going to church. They're doing their own thing. How do we get people to come back? So a great question, and I, I think I saw the same survey that came out. Those things typically come out around Easter or right. Christmas, you know. Right. But anyway— But the churches were packed. At least mine was. Well, I, I was going to say, John, the good news is that people have not completely abandoned their faith. They may not practice it on a weekly basis. We may only see them a couple times a year uh, or for special family times like a wedding or a funeral. But the fact is that in here in the United States that we still, for the most part, are a country of believers. We are a Christian country. So I would just say anecdotally, the priests that I've spoken to here after Easter, I think to a person have all told me that they felt like there were more people in church this year, which was great to hear. And we welcome them. We hope and pray that they have some experience which will uh, touch their heart or touch their soul and inspire them to want to be more engaged in their faith. Of course, the other thing we can do is to always invite people. 
right? So if we know somebody that doesn't go to church very often, maybe twice a year, maybe invite them to go to Mass with you one weekend. And uh, uh, that's another way of reaching out to them. I believe it was the story of Philip, I think, in the Old Testament, where he was riding along and wanted to learn more about the story and then wanted and became baptized right there. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so it was that was a I might call that almost a shotgun baptism. <laughs> right. uh, that was a quick one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there was nothing preventing the baptism from taking place, and so it did. But again, we we need to be those instruments which lead others to God's grace and to the faith. Well, that's part of it. You know, sometimes people are in different stations in their life, and I'll get calls at Spirit FM from listeners say, "You know what? I hadn't been to church in thirty years. You played that song." or that was said during the prayer time, and you know what, I think I'm going to start going back, or or I'm going to start listening more, that kind of thing. People are moved by those, but we have to be welcoming and inviting, and part of that's part of our mission. Yeah, and you know, we did this last Christmas, and then did it again at Easter. We had some television ads out on local TV and cable. I know at Christmas time, a number of individuals mentioned that they came back to the church, after being away for decades because they saw that ad and felt it was welcoming and it inspired them to come back. My, I was on the back porch cleaning the porch. My wife comes running outside, Bishop's on TV. And I thought, <laughs> maybe he's on the news or something. And I came in and, and it was the commercial. <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, so those are little 30-second spots that we do. And it's something we're going to continue to do because it's an effective way of um, preaching and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Switching gears now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the traumatic and tremendous fire that took place in Paris at the Notre Dame Cathedral. Have you ever been there? I I have. When I was a a seminarian uh, studying in Rome on one of our breaks that we had, I don't remember if it was a Christmas or Easter, but we traveled up into Europe and and did have an opportunity to spend a few days in Paris and, of course, went to Sacre Coeur, which is another beautiful church there, as well as Notre Dame, which is spectacular. And just remember the beauty of it, the majesty of it, and, of course, the history, you know, that it's been there for hundreds of years. Did you see it when it was taking place? I mean, the the fire on, when the news broke? or Yeah, I, I learned about it that same day. I was uh, here at the pastoral center, so I wasn't able to, um, to watch television until I, I got home that evening. But some of the staff mentioned it to me, and then I went online and, and saw some of the coverage. Like I think everyone, I was just kind of shocked, you know, and um, horrified at what I saw. It was just hard to believe that you see such an iconic structure in church, a sacred place in flames. And to that degree, it was quite dramatic. And then, of course, the next day to see the aftermath and to see the damage that was done, but also to realize that much more could have happened, uh, if not but for the efforts of the the firemen that were there. Uh, There were some real, uh, probably unnamed heroes that we'll never know that, that really stepped forth. One of the things that came to mind, well, we see that so far more than a billion dollars has been pledged. The The government wants to have it rebuilt in five years, which is going to be a, a tremendous effort. They've got the Olympics coming to Paris in the next five years or so, four years, something like that. So they want to get that up and going. My thought was, with all this money being raised for it, does the church have insurance to cover the cost of rebuilding that kind of thing? I mean, it's one thing to have insurance for the local parish up the street. It's another to 
have coverage on uh, such a historic? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I'm not sure I know the definitive answer to that. First of all, as you mentioned, we, we did see a great outpouring of generosity from around the world and even here from the United States. And maybe we can mention that is that uh, on our website at dosp.org, there is a link that you can click on if you're interested in donating to the reconstruction of Notre Dame. I'm sure they had some insurance, but quite honestly, how would you ever value something like Notre Dame Cathedral? It would be nearly impossible to place a value on it. And probably they never imagined that there could be such wide destruction, right. you know? So they probably had some level of coverage, but I would, it's, I can only imagine minimal compared to what it's going to cost sure. to, uh, to rebuild, which is why the private donations are so important. Yeah. And I noticed it was interesting that the, some of the people in Paris are protesting because of the great outpouring for this building, yet we can't have fair wages, we're not taking care of the poor, that kind of thing. How does the church and how does the government justify that? We need to do both, right? So we we certainly need to heed the social mission of the church and to care for uh, those in need, the last, the lost, and the least among us. But we also need to care for our places of worship and for our churches and basilicas, because that's where we gather. You know, that's where we go to be in community and to celebrate our faith. You know, we always remember the example of St. John Vianney, and uh, maybe Our listeners are familiar with his story, but boy, he was a very, very simple, a very humble priest and denied himself all kinds of luxuries. There's stories that he ate potatoes, you know, (laughs) that that was what his meals were. But one thing St. John Vianney always believed was that when it came to God and to the things of God, uh, that they should be good, that they there should be no limit to what we offer back to God. But again, we need to do both. So that needs sure. to be balanced with also taking care of the poor. Sure. I want to wrap things up by asking you about the, the priest and clergy changes. This is the time of year when uh, you sort of shuffle the deck. I don't know that that's how it really goes down, but things get moved around within the parishes for our clergy. How does that process take place? Sure. Yeah, it is. Because typically over the summer is when those changes become effective. So usually July 1st and the summer, just because it's a a bit of a more quiet time during the year. So if a priest has to move from one parish to another, those transitions can take place in a a little more orderly fashion. But but yes, we we just published a listing uh, of all the clergy changes. Not every priest or pastor is being moved. Some of them requested changes in their assignment and others we needed to take a new assignment to fulfill a need. The process uh, that I use as bishop, and each bishop is different maybe, but I actually have a priest personnel board that I appointed. It's, I think, about eight priests that serve on it, very diverse in terms of where they are, geography, their experience in the priesthood, language. And so we meet or begin meeting shortly after Christmas, usually Mm -hmm. in Maybe as early as January or February, we start having our meetings, and we'll meet usually three or four times, usually completing our work around Easter. It's a deliberative process. We look at what the needs of the diocese are. We look at which priests are asking for changes. Ultimately, the board makes a recommendation to me, 
They usually take a vote when, when some, a priest is proposed for a, an assignment. They'll take a vote and then make a recommendation to me. And typically I concur. I'm present for the meetings. So I'm uh, privy to the discussion that takes place mm-hmm. and part of that. So yeah, this is a, a normal and a healthy process that every diocese goes through. And as hard as it could be to lose a priest from our parish who we love and who we've gotten to know, it's just part of the priesthood, and it's good. It's good for the priest, and it's good for the parish. In years past, I don't know if that's this is the case now, but typically a pastor will be assigned for roughly six or seven years. An associate or a parochial administrator, two or three, has that process changed? No, it's, if not written, it's kind of an unwritten uh, like rule baseball. or protocol <laughs> okay. that we, that we, we follow uh, because we want, for example, our pastors, we want them to have some stability. So we want them to be able to establish themselves in a parish, get to know the parish, and make a difference there. So we typically wouldn't move a pastor earlier than, say, six years. Okay. If they're doing well and they would like to stay there and they're not needed elsewhere, we could renew that for another six years. Typically after 12 years in the same parish, it's, it's time for a change. Mm-hmm. So we would look at that. Associate pastors or parochial vicars, as we call them, that's strictly based on need. But again, you don't want to move them every year. So you would typically leave them in place, hopefully for about three years before they would be considered for another assignment or asked to be a pastor. Can a pastor say, Bishop, I'm really asking you to stay for another year or can you reconsider? Sure. So uh, the last thing I would want to do is to have a, a, a priest accept assignment under the <laughs> duress of obedience, right, right, right. Uh, even though we, we make that promise when we're ordained for the good of the parish that I'm asking them to go to. So that chrism mass is still in <laughs> mind. <laughs> exactly. That promise of obedience right. always comes back. But, you know, that's often when that promise is tested, right. is when somebody's asked to take an assignment that they maybe didn't think about or didn't request, uh, but yet we ask them to trust in the bishop and the fact that the bishop discerns what's best for the diocese and for that priest. But I guess the bottom line is I would always uh, want to have, hopefully, the buy-in of the priest so that they're looking forward to their new assignment. When you were a priest, was there talk in the deanery meetings or amongst the guys like, boy, I sure would like to be at that parish, or I'd like to be at that parish, or boy, I don't want to go there. <laughs> was there any of that kind of talk? Yeah, you know, I think every diocese, the the priests talk, and I think sure. some parishes are uh, maybe considered to be like more desirable. Uh-huh. I think all of our parishes here in St. Peter, in the diocese of St. Petersburg, are great. But yeah, they probably would feel more comfortable depending on whether they want to be in a parish with a school or without a school, with a lot of young people, maybe a more mature congregation, all of those different things. So yeah, the the, the priests do talk. I know that each diocese in the state usually send someone down to the seminary to work. What's the timetable of that? And I know that we've got, I think, a couple of priests from our diocese down there. One had the homily the other day, Monsignor Toops. Is there going to be a chance when he might come back to the area? So other than... Without giving away secrets. No, no. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. But, um, but other than parish assignments, there's other special assignments or needs that the church has. And as you just mentioned, one of those is providing faculty 
or formators for our seminaries. And we do that here in Florida. So there's seven dioceses in the state. And then we have other dioceses outside the state that send seminarians there. So we very often will ask bishops to be generous and maybe giving one of their priests or two to serve on faculty, to teach, or just to be part of the formation process as a spiritual director or some other administrative function. As you mentioned, Monsignor David Toops is a priest of our diocese, and he's currently the rector at our major seminary in Boynton Beach called St. Vincent de Paul, which, by the way, he's done a great job there and very proud of him and glad he's a priest of our diocese. So um, I'm not inclined to. I would love to ask him to come back, but I also recognize he's fulfilling a very necessary role in what he's doing because what he's doing is forming our future priests. And we want, we want good priests. Sure, and I know that Monsignor Moore was down there, uh, Sipple, Father Arthur Pruel, who's now at the cathedral. A number of Katrisha has been down there. So I know it's a great sacrifice for the diocese, especially when it sometimes we seem a little short of priests up here. Um, how's the vocations? Because we've got, a, we've got an ordination coming up. We do. Uh, May 18th at uh, the Cathedral of St. Jude the Apostle, I'll be ordaining three new priests for our diocese. So we're looking forward to that. Two of them will soon to be Father Anthony Astrab and Father Joshua Hare will be receiving parish assignments, which have been announced. That's right. And uh, the third uh, new priest, Father Ralph D'Elia, will be returning to Rome where he's been studying in seminary. He'll spend his first year of priesthood there finishing his his, his degree in it, Rome, and then we'll return next year. Is that like a canon law degree or— He's actually studying moral theology, so it'll be a degree in sacred theology with a concentration in moral theology. So can any priest just say, hey, Bishop, I want to get my degree in that, or is that something that you assign him? Yeah, so when it comes time to make that decision at the seminary there in Rome and with the university, usually a bishop would have a conversation with the seminarian and would kind of mutually determine what would be best. In other words, is there a need in the diocese for a particular degree or area of study? What's the passion of the seminarian who who's going to be studying it, you know? Right. And in this case, Deacon Ralph, soon to be Father Ralph D'Elia, and I decided that uh, moral theology would be something that could be very valuable here in our diocese okay. to have an expert in moral theology. Well, as we close up our program today, we'll ask for your blessing and for uh, God's guidance as we continue uh, through this Easter season. God, our Father, as we continue to celebrate the joy of your Son's resurrection, we ask your blessing upon each one of us. We pray that each day we may do our best to live as an Easter people, to live as people of faith and people of joy. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you always. Amen. For more with Bishop Parks, including past programs, his social media accounts, and ways to subscribe to this podcast, visit dosp.org bishop. A View from the Top is a production of Spirit FM 90.5 and the Communications Office of the Catholic Diocese of St. Petersburg. A View from the Top is made possible by the annual pastoral appeal and listeners like you. Thank you for your support.